You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. This morning from John 10, verses 1 to 21. Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, Anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them out of all, uh, when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. A man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Again, it's such an honor and a privilege to be able to be part of your service, Um, particularly because, you know, uh, Dave and I have been friends for quite a while. I was just saying to him this morning that, you know, we were already meeting in this renewal retreat group, a bunch of pastors, and as he was just dreaming about this, you know, and just to walk into this space, worshipping, uh, it's not just his dream, it's obviously God's dream and, and Pip's dream, but also now the church's dream, right, um, as, you, as you join together. So it's, it's an honour and privilege to be able to walk into that, and also to be invited by Dave to be part of your series um, that you've been talking about, uh, a, a better story, how the, the Christian story or the Jesus story, the kingdom story, um, is actually a better story to live into and to live out of. Uh, and today, I particularly have the topic of our longing for justice, God's justice. 
What does that look like in terms of a better story? Now, when I say justice, I don't mean uh, maybe some of us understand justice as in Justice League. Maybe this shows a little bit of my generation. Um, or justice, the judicial system, as good as that is. Um, it, it, it more That system thinks about punishments or laws, and if you break it, there are consequences. Biblical justice, however, is fundamentally relational. I don't know if you knew that. It is fundamentally relational. It's about relationships. So when justice or biblical justice exists, relationships are whole. Relationships are good. Relationships are authentic and true. In fact, the word in Hebrew, uh, you know, with justice, I'm going to stuff it up, but it's mishpat and serikah, justice and righteousness coupled together. Because there is a, a level of justice, what is just, what is right, set by God, and the doing of justice, righteousness, the doing of that justice. And that's what God asks for of his people, justice and righteousness. In fact, Tim Keller pushes it a little bit more, and he says it, it, that couplet is probably the best way to translate it is social justice for today, kingdom social justice. And so fundamentally, biblical justice is about relationships. And therefore, injustice is about broken relationships. Broken relationships with God, broken relationships with each other, broken relationship with creation. It's about broken relationships. And biblical justice is about bringing that together, putting that as a whole. Does that make sense? And so um, today I'm going to talk about what it looks like to have a story of justice. Biblical justice. What does that mean? But I will also offer the other side of that, the story of injustice, the story of poverty. And sometimes I'll use that um, interchangeably because it's actually really important. Let me continue to unpack that with a story. A couple of years ago, I was in, uh, in Cambodia um, just, just before all the lockdowns happened. And as, as I usually do, it was my third time in Cambodia, I would usually go to this place called the Tol Slang Museum. Has anyone seen that place before? Yeah. So you, you understand, it's, it's also nicknamed the Genocide Museum. Oops, let's go back. It's called the Genocide Museum because around 20,000 plus people have gone through that place during 1975 to 1979 during the Khmer Rouge Army, a very... Uh, authoritarian, dictator kind of army or regime. Of the 20,000 plus, and this is a school, by the way, was, was a school. Of the 20,000 plus people that went through that place, only 12 people survived. Five children, seven uh, men. I've shaken the hands of two of those men. Last time I was there, though, I decided to do a walking tour. I've never done that before, so I did an audio walking tour. And as I did that walking tour, I, I was hearing different encounters, different, and it was just such a confronting thing to do. You walk into interrogation chambers, interrogation chambers, and they still left it as it was set up. There were still, and I'm sorry, I want to apologize for some of the confronting parts of, my, of this story. There's still some bloodstains on the floor, and they left it as it is to remind people. Anyway, I get to one of the interrogation chambers, And as I got there, the guy on the audio is now one of the interrogators. He is 
part of the Khmer Rouge army or was part of the Khmer Rouge army. And he was talking about how his hands were committing all these acts of atrocities to people. He remembers. But he says, as my hands committed these acts of atrocities, my mind was saying, this is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. This is all in Khmer translated. And then his, but his heart was saying, no, it's right. It's for the love, the passion for your country, as they were told. You see what happens when evil, injustice, sin enters into our world? It actually fractures us. That is the story of injustice. It fractures us. It fragments us. It pulls us apart. And it asks us to live according to that story. Does that make sense? It asks us to live according to that story. And that story is normal. That's just the way it is. But Jesus' story is a better story, is it not? It actually asks us, even in those dark spaces, to be bringing people, things, communities together, to be healing, to be restoring, to be reconciling. That's who we are as the people of Jesus. I'll continue, but let me just pray as well. Father, I, I pray, Lord, that as I speak about these things, that as you know, Lord, my heart is that this is not just my words, that you will be speaking to your people right now. We know, Lord, that you're already here. <clears throat> and as you do so, Lord, we, we know and we understand that you get our individual stories that are here, but you get our communal story as well as the people of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that as you convict, as you confront, as you challenge, as you encourage us, that you will reveal aspects that are practical, but that are also transformative and deep. We ask all this in your name. Amen. And so today I'm going to present a framework. I'm sorry, this is like getting a little bit lectury, I understand. But because when Dave asked me to do this, I was just like, okay, I think I've been working on this, sorry, seven-part series um, around justice. And so what I wanted to do was give a bit of that today. So I'm just going to condense all of that and give you an overview in 25 minutes, right? And the, the idea behind it is that there is this story framework that we all live by. There is one side and there is another side. I'll just use the back of my hand as a good side. The good story... God's story, Jesus' story, and then the counterfeit story, the counter story to that. The thing that oppresses and pushes down and pulls us apart. That kind of story, the one that I just kind of mentioned. And with these kind of stories, there's, there's always this tension. But what I want to leave you with is, um, is why I want to leave you with this framework is because I want it to be practical as well. I want you to be able to go out into your community into your families, into your workplaces, your study, whatever it is, and you can kind of have this framework in your head and see what does the gospel, the good news of the kingdom look like? What does justice look like? What does shalom, well-being, wholeness look like for me this week, for me in my context? And so I want to give you two things. One, firstly, that Jesus transforms our story. Jesus transforms our story. I said there's this one side and there's this other side. What Jesus doesn't ask, and I'll unpack this in the second one, he's not saying, this is your story right now, a bad story, a counterfeit story, and this is my side, just flip it around. He's actually not saying that. He's saying, what I'm, I am doing, what Jesus is doing, 
is I'm taking my story into your story. I am, I'm not going to wait on you. I am coming in, God with us, transforming our collective story. That's what he's going to do. Right? So there's this good news that Jesus comes to transform our collective human story. And that's why when you see Jesus speaking about his ministry, he's talking about, you know, like in Luke 4, one of his favorite oh, popular sermons is that he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I am going to go to where the fragments and the fractures and the cracks are, and I'm going to bring wholeness and shalom to those spaces. I am going to, in Mark, he says, one of the great commissions, says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. The good news is for all creation. And finally, he says, well, third one that I'll mention, one that was read for us. This is a passion, passion translation. But I have come to give you everything in abundance, more than you expect, life in its fullness, until you overflow. Now, if you read that individualistically, you can, you can read that and say, that's about me getting as much as possible and live a bloated kind of life. But if you read that from a community perspective, from a relational perspective, you see that Jesus' vision is that everyone, yes, individuals, but people have a life to the full, and in their overflow, they're blessing one another. Does that make sense? He doesn't operate from a lack. He's operating from overflow, from shalom, from wholeness and goodness. So, I keep talking about this framework. Here it is. <laughs> Again, I hope that this helps you. <clears throat> this is born out of, you know, being a pastor, trying to wrestle with this, working with social workers, development workers, and everything, people who care about what's going on in this world. I know all of you do but people who are in the front lines of it. And this is my way of kind of condensing it, or at least as, a, as a, a, a picture of it, and hopefully it helps. Because the story framework understands that there is, yes, a physical, bio, biological, physical aspect to who we are in our story, right? There is uh, systems, governance, political, economic systems that operate within our, life, our lives. There's a relational component, component, a community component. There is a mind component, whether psychological or mental. And there is, whether people like it or not, a spiritual component, as you were mentioning. There is a strong sense in, in, in Nepal that it is a spiritual place. And sometimes we forget that part. And what happens is, <clears throat> in the story that was read to us in John, in, in John 10, the, the reason why Jesus was saying it to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, you get the glimpse of it right at the end. Right? He says he's come for the blind as well. People may see. So you're asking the question, why is Jesus saying in John 10.10, 10, I have come to give life in abundance? Why is he saying to the Pharisees, sort of uh, giving the implication that you are the thieves? You are the ones coming in. You're fake. Why is he saying that? Because in chapter 9, there is the story of the blind man being man born blind being healed. Now, I don't have time to read the whole chapter because it's one of the longest stories. 
nutshell version, there was a man born blind and he was healed. Now, I don't know if you know this, but there isn't a story in Old Testament uh, or at that time of, that is known that a man was born blind and he was healed. This was Jesus' thing. So that's why when it happened, people were like, what is going on? But right at the beginning of it, you see the story framework. Right at the beginning of chapter 9, you see the disciples say, Jesus, there's a guy who is born blind. It's in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. You don't need to fully understand what that is, but it's also called the Feast of Lights. Kind of like vivid, but <laughs> Jewish times, or Hebrew, like ancient times. Feast of Lights, celebrating the fact that they used to live in tents, tabernacle, and that God's fire and light was guiding them during their wilderness time. So in the Feast of Lights, Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. Heal someone born blind, right? So there's a significance to that. And so as they go through the Feast of Tabernacle, Feast of Lights, they see a man being born blind, and he was begging. And then the disciples ask, Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man's sin? Was it his parents' sin? And suddenly you see the story framework, right? Whose sin was it? It's kind of like a karma idea. For him to be born blind this way, there must have been severe sin. Whose was it? And that's why Jesus' response was this. Neither this man sinned nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But so that the work of God might be displayed in his life, we must do the work of him who sent me while it is still day. I am the light of the world, he says after that. What's he saying? He's saying, you're so focused on the story of the counterfeit story, the counter story of this is the way it is. He, someone sinned. Jesus is saying, that's not the focus. The focus is, while there is still daytime, the, 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 the one, the sent one, is coming in to do the work of justice, the work of shalom, the work of wholeness, the work of bringing people together. And then he heals the man born blind. He is trying to say, this is the story I want you to live into and live out of. Not about who is at fault, who is sinful, who it, I want you to be living into my story of justice, story of shalom, story of wholeness, story of well-being. <clears throat> and so that is the story of poverty. We might be aware of the body kind of poverty, physical. They need food. They need water. But there are other sides to the story that actually keep people poor. But if you understand poverty in this way as well, that means poverty isn't just overseas. It's actually here as well. Is it not? So God isn't just doing work of poverty overseas. He's doing work going against poverty here as well. We can go to Nepal, and if you've seen or heard or experienced our brothers and sisters there, you would say they're actually spiritually rich. And they would say we are spiritually poor. Right? Does that make sense? And so there is this different aspects of poverty. Again, I'll, I'll probably skip through the, some of the things that I'm going to say because there is a lot. Sorry. Um, I do want to stop here. Brian Myers talks about it this way in terms of brokenness. 
He says, poverty is a result of relationships that do not work, that are not just, that are not for life, that are not harmonious or enjoyable. Poverty is the absence of shalom in all its meaning. And so you have this idea of poverty. Now, if you, if you want the slides, I'll just send it to, to Dave. Um, you, but just keep in mind that aspect of the story of poverty. And so if you think about <clears throat> what's going on with the, uh, with the blind man, he's going to skip all this there. What's going on with the blind man, there is actually um, this story of poverty that is, exists in his life. There is this uh, he was blinded, so there's this physical aspect of poverty. There's a beggar system. He was outcasted. He was labeled as a sinner, so that's a special category of people. Um, and there was this idea in terms of his spirituality, a fatalism, this idea that I've given up. This is as good as it gets. Now, you'll hear a little bit in a little bit. I'll show a video of a friend of mine um, who works actually at Baptist World Aid. He's Nepalese background um, to share his story. He was going to be here with us this morning, um, but he couldn't because he takes care of his daughter, rightly so, on a Sunday. And he said, ah, oh, she's just going to be on me like a koala. Like. And I said, oh, can I just record you then? And I said, yep. So you get to hear a little bit of his story and how all this plays out. And so you see that with the blind man, keep in mind that when Jesus healed him, he then sent him to the pool of scent, Siloam. As he washes, then he is healed. After that, this real investigation unfolds because he was a man born blind. It's never happened before. And so the religious leaders are saying, how were you healed? And he's like, I don't know, this guy named Jesus. Keep in mind, he had not seen Jesus. All he had going for him was Jesus' voice. That's all he had going for him. He then went to the place of scent, Siloam, Washed, and then he was healed, right? And then approved. He has not seen Jesus. So when they kept pushing and pushing him, he kept just saying, it was just this guy named Jesus. It was this guy named Jesus. It doesn't say that he comes to faith, does it? It's not until later on that we see that he comes to faith when he gets kicked out of the synagogue. He just keeps pushing deeper and deeper and deeper. All he had going for him was this glimpse, this image of shalom, of wholeness and well-being for his eyes and the voice of Jesus himself. As everyone tried to push him further down to the counter story, all he had going for him was Jesus' story that has come into his life and has changed him. Secondly and finally, <clears throat> Jesus transforms our story but Jesus also redeems your story. What I mean by that is that, yes, he does care about you individually as well. In the context of family and community, but Jesus realigns your purpose in life. He gives you a compass to live by. He gives you a story to live into and live out of. He doesn't leave you on your own. As he comes to transform the human story, he comes to redeem your story and give you purpose and give you direction, give you a mission. Yes, you individually, but you as a church as well. <clears throat> I'm going to introduce to you a, a word in, in Filipino. It's called baliklob. 
Has anyone heard of this term? Okay. I, yay! We do have a Filipino. Yes. <laughs> now, if you understand a little bit of colonial history, part of the reason why I don't like I don't like the word convert or repent, and I'll give you a reason why, um, is because of colonial history. There's been maybe for those of you who are aware of history and mission history, particularly if you talk to our First Nations brothers and sisters you know that the word mission is not a necessarily a positive word. There's been oppression by colonial powers. And at times, it came at the cost of, you cross this line so that you will be accepted. I'll give you, I'll give you an, uh, an example. My name is Mar, Mar Buen Diaz, right? That is Spanish. 400 years of Spanish colonialism in Philippines. The reason why my name is Spanish, that's actually not my real name like my grandparents, my great-great-grandfather's name. It's actually a Chinese background name, Yuchenko. But in order for you to own land in the Philippines, you had to cross the line and say you were Christian. And the only way you can be Christian is if you convert to Christianity, which means to have a Spanish name. That's why when you, have, when you meet a lot of Filipinos, hey, why do you have a Spanish name? Do you speak Spanish? I don't speak Spanish. But there is a lot of history behind that. So anyway, that's a short story of this. Um, that's why there's, there's a reason why I don't like the word repent or convert. Um, but I found out the word for convert or repent in Tagalog or in Filipino, and it's baliklob. Literally, it means return to the inside. Return to the inside. And that loob word, inside, is a very important cultural word. It means... Again, just literally, it does mean inside, but it has a cultural significance. There's an example. <clears throat> the word kalooban means will or soul. You see the word loob there. Lakas loob, courage or bravery, and so on and so forth. That word loob is a very important word. So, balik loob, it means, repent, repentance means, go back to who you truly were created to be by God. I love that word a lot more. It's less about crossing a line and more about reconciling, redeeming, restoring you to who you were created to be, the plan A of things. It's again God going into transforming that, redeeming your story and telling you this is who you were created to be in the first place. Let me heal you to that. And this is the beautiful thing that Jesus did for this blind man. And the more and more the blind man understood it, the more and more he grew in his faith. It didn't matter that the people were kicking him out of the synagogue anymore because he had something that he was holding on to. Jesus' voice of truth and his healing, he cannot deny that. Maybe for some of you today, that you need to hear that. Jesus has not forgotten you that Jesus hasn't forgotten your story. In this world of chaos or unknown, what the direction is for the future, good news is that Jesus redeems your story. Jesus knows your story, and he does have a plan for you, and he has not forgotten. Believe in that. Trust in that. There's a community of believers here who will testify to that, even at times when it's hard. So, before I share my friend's 
story for a little bit, just for six minutes, just so you get to hear a bit of the, the Nepalese um, story. This, I would say, this is actually the more accurate picture, that there is an inner reality, a lo'ob reality, and the outer reality. The inner reality is our spiritual reality, and what happens is evil, injustice, and poverty rips us apart. Jesus comes to heal, Jesus, Holy Spirit, three in one. Anyway, I don't, I don't want to unpack that today. Um, and the goal is then that a true, everything is spiritual, the true, healed, whole, spiritual reality of things helps heal all the outer layers as well. Go back, go return to who you were in the inside, how you were created to be. Does that make sense? That's like seven in one sermon. Let me play to you my friend. And again, I, I, wanted, I wanted you to see him, you know, like a person face to face. Enough of mobs coming every year and speak. I, I wanted someone who was from Nepal, who grew up there, who understood poverty. Um, this is a half an hour um, interview. I narrowed down to six minutes. Um, and hopefully you will hear um, what he's talking about. Again, this was not planned. I just wanted to ask him what was going on um, in his life. So let's play it, and then I'll wrap it up. What main stories have kept people poor or vulnerable to injustice? Ah, good question. Uh, there are many stories, I think, uh, but let me highlight at least four of them which are significant in my opinion. I think first is uh, the idea of rebirth or reincarnation. And then second is division of society based on caste system. And then I think third is the strong patriarchal society or patriarchal system. And then I think fourth is the mindset of powerful people are above the law. The first one, the idea of rebirth or reincarnation is so powerful and so strong in Nepalese, Nepalese society. And I would say it is also a strong belief of people. And the life you have now is the consequences of your action in your earlier life. So I think second important one is the division of society based on caste system. Um, and caste system has divided the society and hence people from so-called lower caste are subject to, subject to injustice. And then they are also more or less taken as a lower category of people than the higher caste, higher caste people. And there is a narrative or story um, in Hinduism that uh, Brahmins who are top in this category uh, wave you know, made by God from his head. And then the second category, uh, our second category of caste, let's say Chetri, and then they are created by the soldier. And then the, let's say Dalit, for example, are the untouchable, we created um, by the God from his foot. So that's the whole narrative there. And, and that is why people tend to understand that Anyway, they are they are the other category of people. They are not like like us. That's the whole whole psychic and mentality. And then definitely the third one is a strong patriarchal system of society. And then people knowingly or unknowingly believe that 
women as weak in comparison to men and women are created to serve men and people still treat daughters as some commodities which can be traded um, traded among among people and girls are burdened to family and hence they should not be educated the parents aborting a baby girl is probably one of the current examples that how society is so so patriarchal and actually the last one um, is the mindset of like powerful people are above the law I think it is everywhere in the world, whether we live in Australia or whether we live in America or we live in Nepal. But I think the degree of that mindset is too high in our culture and in our system. So if you are a powerful person, and then basically law doesn't apply to you. So it is for somebody who are, who are not really powerful. Have you, to what you're comfortable with sharing, have you had personal experience of this? Of these kinds of stories in your life? Yes, all of them. Actually, mm-hmm. I have uh, I have experienced all four different categories that I briefly mentioned. Let me share at least one example or one story from my from my family. I was born and grown up in northeast of Nepal, which is northeast from Kathmandu in a poor family. And my father was a laborer and uh, produces from our tiny family farm would not be enough for, would be enough hardly for six months or a year to feed family. So as a child, we had to go with our parents to do a labor work to support, support family. But this is not the part of the major story, okay? Interestingly, my parents sent, sent my brother and me to school but not to my three elder sisters. They were daughters and there is no point to send them to school as they would get married and go away anyway. And actually, when my younger sister was born, my father said, throw her to jungle. As he was expecting a second son, actually, which is me. And as they were born, they were born as daughters, and which is due to their actions in their earlier life. I mean, parents thought that it is okay not to, not to send them to school. So my three sisters are, are illiterate, basically, even not educated, but illiterate. My f- brother is educated, I'm educated, but my three sisters are, are completely illiterate even now, even today. So how does Jesus' story then? challenge those kinds of stories that you mentioned? Yeah, interesting. Uh, Yeah, the story of Jesus comes with, um, I think, the strong notion, belief, and experience of respect, dignity, and equality, love, and I think redemptions of all past learning mindsets and experiences which truly liberate people from their circumstances. That is the uniqueness we Christian organizations, we Christian agency bring into the, into the development. And poverty is part of the story, not the full story. So full story is poverty and life with, you know, with a dignified life. Actually, that's a, that's a, that's a full story. Our friend Mukunda, his, his Brahmin background, though he was in poverty, he is Brahmin background, and that's the way he was raised. 
now has a daughter. So you can imagine the different mindset and intergenerational transformation that happens when that um, perspective changes your life and God's story is a better story comes into your life. So let me pray for that. Are you okay with that? And then Dave will come up. Father, we're so grateful, Lord, for your grace, for your goodness, for your love. We're grateful, Lord, that it wasn't just a theory that just kind of remained out there, that you embodied it in your son and that he came and demonstrated and he lived it and he showed us it was possible. Today in the Christian calendar is the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming to the church. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask you that you continue to transform the way we see our stories, that we're not just going day by day, not knowing what's going to happen, but we're living to a purpose, to a life that is a beautiful call to join you in your work of shalom, wholeness, well-being, of healing, of reconciling in this world. And as we do so, Lord, here in Mossman, here in Sydney, here in Australia, we understand that we partner with our brothers and sisters, where some stories that have been perpetuated for thousands upon thousands of years, that Jesus comes in to break and challenge that story. We pray, Lord, for them right now, that you continue to break and challenge those stories and that you are transforming and redeeming stories everywhere, not just in Nepal, but around the world as well. We're so grateful, Lord, that we're part of this story. Help us, Lord, to realize this more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.